play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, the last meal of travel guru Rick Steves. Rick Steves has put out more than 50 European travel guidebooks. He hosts a public television show called Rick Steves Europe and a public radio show called Travel with Rick Steves. Boy, oh boy, does Rick like to travel. And despite being kind of a buttoned up, detail oriented guy, Rick has been a proponent for legalizing marijuana for a very long time. What is your favorite stoner snack? I used to eat crackling oats without milk. I mean, the cereal crackling oats. I called them joy crunchies. <laughs> um, <laughs> they look like little dog yeah. food pellets, but I love I those know, too. And I, would just, I, I love them and I would eat them one at a time as I was listening to my favorite music or whatever. Rick and I both live in Washington State where pot has been legal for several years now. We have edibles in this state. They are infused with THC and CBD, uh, but you can easily buy them at pot shops. So I chat with Jody Hall. She's the founder of Seattle Cupcake Empire, Cupcake Royale, and she has an edibles company called Good Ship. One of the things that we work on at Good Ship is to kind of eradicate the notion of edible roulette. A lot of us have experienced a, an opportunity where we might have had a little bite or a rat's nibble or a whole brownie and not knowing what we're getting into. Are we getting into a margarita? Are we having a fifth of tequila? It's it's not a good feeling when you when you over-imbibe. No, no, it's not. I recall, uh, let's see, 2001 was the last time that I ate a pot brownie. I hallucinated, I was afraid of the dark, and ironically spent the rest of the night under the covers. <laughs> And, back to Rick Steves, it was actually tough to get Rick Steves to say what his last meal would be because he would rather let a chef of a restaurant cook whatever's in season and what's delicious that day instead of choosing something himself. I had to ask him three times to really focus and tell me what he wanted for his last meal. So we're going to hear from my colleague, Cairo radio host John Curley, about his 2017 New Year's resolution. To never open a menu an order based on what the server says is the most popular item on the menu. What do most people order? Yeah, most people get the rack of lamb. I'm like, it's $47, really? Most people get the rack of lamb? Well, you ask what most people get, they get the rack of lamb. So then I'd get the rack of lamb. I ate more racks of lamb than I've ever eaten before. 2017 turned out to be the New Year's resolution, eat more racks of lamb. And in your last meal news, a really sweet thing happened recently. Back in December, I had Top Chef Judge and Food & Wine Magazine editor Gail Simmons on the program, and her last meal was banoffee pie. Banoffee pie is a British dessert. It is a banana, cream, and dolce de leche pie. Well, there's an ice cream company in Seattle called Sweet Lowe's Homemade Ice Cream. You may remember them. Um, I had the owner, Lauren Wilson, on for my Darcy Carden episode. That's when we were talking about why marshmallows don't freeze in Rocky Road ice cream. So Lauren is a fan of the podcast, and she heard Gail Simmons say that she loved banoffee pie. So Lauren was inspired to create a banoffee pie ice cream flavor. 
roasted banana ice cream, homemade dolce de leche, candied graham crackers, and milk and dark chocolate flakes. So she makes this ice cream, she packages it up, and then she sends six pints of it to Gail Simmons, I think in New York City. Uh, Gail receives the ice cream, tries it, loves it, ends up tweeting about it, Instagramming about it, tells the world that she loves it. Lauren has the best day of her life. I'm excited. It's a complete full circle experience. And that concludes your Your Last Meal news. <laughs> All right, let's get into the episode with Rick Steves. So your new book is called Travel as a Political Act, How to Leave Your Baggage Behind. Can you explain the concept of your new book? This is not uh, your typical, you know, pick a city in Europe guidebook. Right. Yeah, well, people who know me know me from decades of teaching European travel. And I've been teaching enthusiastically and tirelessly here in the Seattle area since the 80s. And if I look back on it, I I didn't have any grand plan, but there's been sort of a logical evolution. In the 80s, I was talking about, you know, um, Europe through the back door. That was the book. And and it was uh, budget skills, how to use a train pass, how to get a good hotel, how to pack light and stay healthy and so on. Uh, And then in the 90s, it occurred to me, okay, you know, we've caught the train. We know how to pack and find a hotel. That's the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs, you could say. Uh, the next step up would be enjoying the culture and the history and the art and the cuisine. And I, I wrote a book called Europe 101, and I was enthusiastically teaching classes about appreciating the culture and the art. And then since 9-11, I've realized that the pinnacle of this, what I consider Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs, is to travel in a way where you get out of your comfort zone and you mess up your, 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 your wallop, your ethnocentrism, uh, you gain an empathy for the other 96% of humanity, and you come home with what I think is the most beautiful souvenir, and that's a broader perspective. So that's what I find myself teaching. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to go uh, embark on a 25-city and 30-day road trip around the United States, and uh, almost every night I'm going to be talking to big crowds uh, about travel as a political act. And uh, the whole idea is, again, to challenge Americans to get out of their comfort zone and to uh, uh, just uh, you know uh, gain a, a better understanding of the rest of the world because it's more important than ever right now that the United States gets itself in a mindset where we're more inclined to build bridges and less inclined to build walls. And I think that's important from a a national security point of view, by the way, too. The most dangerous thing we can do is stay home and hide under a bed and build walls. We've got to play ball with the rest of the world, and we can do it as travelers. I love to go to places where we're not supposed to go. I've been recently to Iran and Cuba and Palestine. Uh, I want to stress I've never uh, gone any place where I thought was was uh, risky or dangerous. Yeah, my dad is from Israel, so I've been a few times, and I went for the first time when I was nine. So my perspective has always been how good the food is and how much fun I had with the people there and like these beautiful sights I saw. And as I got older, I realized, oh, most people don't see Israel in that way. They see it as a war zone. And people would often ask, mm-hmm. you know, why would you go? Don't you feel like, you mm-hmm. know, you'd be nervous you're going to get bombed? And it's like, but all those people live there every day and they go to work and they go out dancing and they date and they're, mm-hmm. they just live their life because you, you can't just stay yeah. home, you know. So that was kind of interesting to me. And I'm sure there's a lot of countries like that where there are amazing things to visit, but we have this taboo or just like yeah. a, a narrow mindedness that it only is a dangerous place. You know, you're so right, Rachel. And a lot of Americans just, they, you know, we're, we're confusing fear and risk. Fear is an emotional thing. And okay, you can be afraid. It's emotional. That's what terrorists are trying to do is they're trying to make us afraid. 
Risk is a statistical thing. What is the risk? Every year, 12 million Americans go to Europe and 12 million come home. I don't know when the last American was killed by a terrorist in Europe. Maybe a couple a year. Does that make it dangerous? Well, look at it from a statistical point of view. Every year, uh, every month, a thousand people are killed on our streets uh, by in, in homicides with guns. Um, is, does that make America dangerous? Well, no, it doesn't. I still go shopping. I still go downtown, use some common sense. But there is a risk. Uh, I, you know, people used to say bon voyage, and now people say have a safe trip. I don't know where this came from, but when when somebody tells me to have a safe trip, I'm inclined to say, well, you have a safe stay at home because where I'm going is statistically, and I know statistics are optional these days, but statistically where I'm going is safer than where you're staying. In fact, if you knew the statistics and you, and, you, and you loved your children, you would take them to Europe tomorrow because you're living in a very dangerous part of this world here in the USA. What is your favorite country in the world for eating or favorite city? Mm, well, ha, that's a fun question. I think Japan's my favorite country in the world for eating. I just love eating in Japan. Uh, and in Europe, I I love working on the uh, restaurant sections and all my guidebooks, and every night I'm out uh, blitzing all the restaurants. And at the end of a long night of looking at restaurants, checking the restaurants already in my book and looking up new ones, I sit down in my favorite new restaurant of the evening, and I love to just ask the chef to bring me whatever he wants me to eat. My favorite countries in Europe for food would be Italy and and France, no surprise. Uh, One thing I think is very important, if you are a good eater going to a good restaurant, in Europe anyways, you can look at the menu and you can know where you are and what month it is by what's being served. And that's the whole idea of eating with the seasons and eating local specialties. That's why I like to look at the, what's the, the, the daily specials and so on. That's where you'll have, oh, the porcini mushrooms are in season, so everybody's into that right now, or the white asparagus, and everybody's into that. Eat what the locals are eating. Eat with the season. Eat in a small mom-and-pop restaurant. Another very important tip is to go to a restaurant that is is a low-rent place, not on Piazza Navona where the high rent is and all the tourists are, but in a little hole-in-the-wall place a few blocks away, which is low-rent, packed with enthusiastic local eaters with a handwritten small one-language menu. Handwritten because it changes with what's ever fresh in the market this week. Small because they're only cooking up what they can serve profitably and uh, at a good value. And one language because they're targeting local eaters rather than tourists. Sometimes that's hard, though. When I was in Venice, we literally walked for hours trying to get away from the same tourist menus. Walking and walking, we finally found a place because I'm looking exactly for what you're talking about. But I find it to be a little challenging. I had the same experience in Lisbon where I was like, oh, my God, I just want to get out of here. I want to go to where the locals Mm. are eating. Mm-hmm. Well, Venice, um, Rachel, is, is impossible because Venice is completely a tourist town. So there's no restaurant in Venice, I don't think, that could live without tourism. And uh, what I would resort to there is the local tapas culture. It's called Chiquetti. I love it. And then you just go to a series of uh, local bars and you eat ugly things on toothpicks and you wash it down with local wine. And it's one of those mobile meals. You'll go to three places in an evening and you'll eat all sorts of adventurous food. You'll talk to new friends at the bar. You won't spend very much money and you'll be eating the local cuisine. Yes, I had this experience that Rick talks about when I was in Venice. I would order vegetable, whatever the vegetable was that night to go with my meal. And it was always the same thing. It was summer. So it was eggplant and zucchini. Uh, And I imagine if we were there in the spring, it would have been like squash blossoms. So you kind of have no choice but to eat in season when you're in some of these places. Rick, what is your last meal? What would you choose? My last meal. Oh, man. My last meal. <laughs> That's such a funny question. I don't know what I would choose. I'm, I don't, uh, I'm not that big of a foodie where I'd be concerned about my last meal if I was about to die. But uh, 
if I had to answer that question, I think it might be. Man, oh man, I, there's a there's a little enoteca in uh, Verona, enoteca con grande, run by a, just a delightful husband and wife, and I love to step in there late at night and say, "Bring me whatever you like," and they 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 bring me a beautiful um, bottle of uh, amaretto, and they bring me a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, sort of a montage of antipasti and beautiful, beautiful homemade pasta. And uh, then there's all of these different fire waters that come out after the meal's over. And I've um, made friends with the people at the little tables around me. And before I know it, I've been there for five hours. And hmm. uh, and then I have to die. <laughs> What's a fire water? Fire water would be the local grappa or the local akavit. It's a beautiful dimension of travel. I'm not into hard liquor here, but as I travel, I'm a I'm a cultural chameleon. You know, I never work hard all day long in Seattle and go home and feel like a nice glass of ouzo. But when I'm in Greece, I love to end the day with a nice glass of ouzo as the sun is setting. Uh, tea makes no sense at all to me in this hemisphere. But when I'm in England, a nice shot of tea, a nice spot of tea is, is really good. I was thinking shot of tea because uh, <laughs> north of uh, England in Scotland, I drink whiskey. I never drink whiskey in Seattle. But when I'm in Scotland, I actually buy a small bottle of whiskey and I, and I travel with it and I have a dram every night. And it just helps me feel like I'm in Scotland. And it's a, it's a real joy. I absolutely love that Rick lets the restaurant choose his dinner. And I'm sure it's delicious, but in order for this show to work the way that it does, I needed Rick to tell me a specific food. Like, what kind of antipasta do you want? What kind of pasta do you want? Trying to put a show together here, Rick. You understand that. You have a TV show. You have a radio show. So I pressed him for specifics. And then I pressed him again. It would be the bruschetta with the beautiful olive oil and the variety of toppings. It would be the local pasta with whatever uh, topping that he liked. And uh, I think it would be zucchini flowers. That would be really nice if they were in season. Uh, it wouldn't be fancy food. It would be uh, local food. It would be in-season food. And it would be served by somebody who really knew the beauty of, uh, you know, you reach the culture through the hearth. But uh, that's what I would say. All right. Still not terribly specific, but Rick has made his point. He is happy to eat whatever is in season, whatever is regional, and whatever the cook thinks that they can cook best that day, which really is the best way to go. You can't argue with that. But I personally cannot do this. I have some kind of weird control thing uh, where I really want to select what I'm going to eat. It takes me forever to order. I am kind of annoying to go out to dinner with sometimes. Uh, and and I feel like if I were to let the server choose for me, giving up that control would actually be really good for me in general. I think psychologically it would release a lot. Yeah, we're the opposite here. Really? I'm totally, my, I, I'm, I get paralyzed by choice. Oh. I kind of like everything. It all sounds good. So if I can remove that responsibility from the equation, I am a happy camper. So if you let the server decide what you were going to eat and then it came and you didn't like it, would you feel resentful towards that person? No, I would be mad at myself for not explaining like, hey, I don't really like, you know, shellfish, let's say. And then they bring me a bunch of shrimps. I'd be like, well, shrimps. I probably should have said something. Well, my colleague, our colleague, you're hearing Aaron Mason's voice, the producer of the show, Cairo radio talk show host John Curley. He ate, I guess what we could call the Rick Steves method for an entire year. For one whole year, he never chose what he wanted out of a menu at a restaurant. And we will hear from him when your last meal returns right after this. 
If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. I have a reputation for taking forever to order at a restaurant. I hem and haw over a menu. I'm trying to figure out exactly what I'm in the mood for at that very moment. And I've also been known, I haven't done this as much as I used to, uh, to run back into the kitchen like two minutes after I order. And I'm like, "Uh, I changed my mind. Can I actually have the burger? Is it too late? And sometimes it's too late. and, And other times it's not. And they probably spit in my food. And then sometimes when that arrives, I'm like, should have got the other thing. (laughs) So want to go out to eat with me? It's fun. (laughs) Promise we're going to have a good time. Uh, But my colleague, Cairo talk show host, John Curley has no such worries. All right, John Curley. So every year you do a new year's resolution, uh, ranging from things like not wearing socks, not wearing underwear. Okay. Uh, wearing new socks, introducing myself to whoever's on an elevator, not recognizing Hawaii as the 50th state. And then uh, I developed the theme. Uh, 2016, as you may recall, was order the soup of the day no matter what it is. That was 2016. 2016. So 2017, I continued on that theme, but was to never look at a menu. Okay. So how did you accomplish this goal? Uh, simply by not looking at a menu. <laughs> This is my show. You're going to talk to me like that. Okay, so what you would do is you'd go to a restaurant, right. and then the server comes over and says, oh, what can I get for you, sir? Do you need a few more minutes to look at the menu? And I'd say, no, it's 2017. I'm not looking at menus. And then they just sort of stand there, and then I say, what do most people order? And she's like, uh, a lot of uh, huh? A lot of people get the tacos. And I'm like, great, have the tacos. Or she'd be like, um, and she looks at the menu, and this is when these waitresses or waiters started to figure it out. I'd, what do most people order? Yeah, most people get the rack of lamb. I'm like, it's $47. Really? Most people get the rack of lamb? Well, you ask what most people get, they get the rack of lamb. So then I'd get the rack of lamb. I <laughs> ate more racks of lamb than I've ever eaten before. 2017 turned out to be the New Year's resolution, eat more racks of lamb. Yeah, more rack than you'd ever seen. Uh, okay, so for one year, how often do you go out to eat? Like how many meals were you not choosing for yourself on average? Uh, three, uh, three a week. Okay. Three or four a week, yeah. And did you ever have anything that you really didn't like? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times I'm like, really? This is what people order? And the one lady goes, most people that come in here are pretty poor. I'm like, huh. Where was that? It was a restaurant up on Capitol Hill. It was a Mexican restaurant. And it was terrible. It was this soup and this little crappy taco. Not good. But most of the time, what I found was people have pretty good taste in food. How often then do you think that they were telling you the truth? And how often do you think they were just 
trying to give you the most expensive thing on the menu? I think most of the time, probably eight out of 10 times, they were legitimately answering the question, what do most people order? But as you pointed out, you said the only way this works is you have to walk into the restaurant with absolutely no regard for what you want. You can't walk in going, gosh, I really feel like Crab Louie today. You have to just simply, you know, splay yourself out there and be able to go with whichever everybody wants. Well, it should be pointed out that you're the only person that I know, maybe who I've ever met, who really doesn't care about food. You eat food exclusively for fuel. So I think that this resolution was probably easier for you than anyone else, because this to me sounds like hell. I have tried to do this Uh since you've mentioned it. I haven't done it once. I'll sit there and I'll go, okay, today's the day. No, I just want to order my own thing. And I think that it's a control issue. And Uh I think that if I actually gave up just this little bit of control, it would actually make me a better person. You have... The thing is, you like food. I don't yeah. like food. I remember one time I went in and ordered a Subway sandwich with a friend of mine, and he ordered the turkey, and I ordered the tuna. I picked up his turkey and ate almost all of it, and then he said, hey, <laughs> hey, this is you ordered tuna. And I said, isn't this tuna? He goes, it's turkey. It's so you tur- don't even, you don't even know t- what food is. I don't is. even want to mean I would eat rocks <laughs> if my teeth could up to uh, withhold the pressure. What do you think that is? Do you have different taste buds than the average person, or is it a mental thing? I'm Irish. Okay. I'm Irish, and my mom was a horrible cook and uh, burned a lot of things and then just said, shut up and eat it. So then we just got used to eating really crappy food. So didn't you tell me, though, that sometimes they would kind of get irritated with you? Like they didn't want to have to pick your meal? Yeah, they didn't. They would give me like a bunch of choices, and then they'd say, you know, you could just check the menu. And I'd say, no, I never, literally, it is a freeing experience, like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. When you don't look at the menu, you don't need to look through it. And when they come by and they start to tell you about the specials, you just say, no, 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 don't need I don't need to know the specials. I just need to know what everybody else orders. And that normally the person sitting across from me is like, you are the most annoying person in the world. Which seems like it would be the opposite because I can be a little when Harry met Sally and I'm like, okay, I want this, but can Mm -hmm. you not put it with this? And how about this? And like, it seems like you'd be a dream because then it'd just be like, you're in and you're out. Whatever. That's right. Eat it. Be done. I had a boyfriend who had pretty bad ADD and he had a pile of shirts and he would just wear whichever one was on top. And I noticed when we'd go out to eat, it took me a while to notice it. I was like, you always order one of the first three things on the menu. There you go. He's like, I can't read the whole thing. I right. just get to that. I get bored and I order something in the top three. His one habit that I have developed that I still keep doing that really grosses people out. If the food is too hot, I pour water on it. <laughs> what? You're not supposed to do that. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Because I don't have time to wait for it to cool <laughs> off. I don't want to be blowing on it. I just take whatever it is. If the soup's too hot or the water's too hot, whatever liquid I have nearby, and just pour it on top. Pour it on top of the chicken. Pour it on top. It works. That's why they shoot water at fires. has the same effect. So did you have any kind of, were you able to give up control? Like, did this help you not having to pick something on the menu? I mean, did this, like, save you time in your life? Did it make you feel better that you don't have to make a decision? Like, was this a New Year's resolution that actually benefited you? This benefited me that I felt closer to the uh, appetizers and to the entrees of the general public. And I think that's what we're all striving for. I think Dolly, I think uh, Buddha mentioned that. Dolly. Dolly Lama. Dolly Parton again. Dolly Buddha. Okay, so you mentioned Wreck of Lamb, but what are some other dishes that you found yourself eating a lot? Were there there 
things that there were trends that is there a reoccurring theme yeah, yeah sure let's talk a little bit about the turkey club which is apparently very popular because it has bacon on it i didn't taste any bacon but then again i really wasn't into the whole idea of tasting the food uh, euros surprising me a lot of people like euros you go into a greek restaurant and there's euros out the door so i got the hero i got the, the, the this is during lunch dinner it ran the gamut a lot of chicken people are eating a lot of chicken nowadays i noticed that and a lot of king salmon too they seem to like that Probably because we're here in Seattle. That's probably it. Also, along the lines of your weird food eating habits, you ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or I, peanut butter and honey sandwiches three times a day for many months here. At uh, work. Five times a day. I would bring in five peanut butter and honey sandwiches and eat only that for uh, three months. <laughs> and no dinner. That's all I would eat. And then finally, I because th- I wanted to know, could I eat peanut butter and honey sandwiches five times a day for an entire year? And the answer is no. You could do it for three months. Three months, and then it has an effect upon your colon. Did any server ever recommend a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when you were out? You were like, no, more. You just punched him in the face and run out of the restaurant. (laughs) There he goes, everybody. Mr. John Curley. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Seamless. Yeah. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Hey, we're back with travel expert Rick Steves. So you've been an advocate of legalizing marijuana for many years. I think I interviewed you probably like eight years ago or something about this long before it became legal in Washington. Uh, I think a lot of people now are learning that, you know, there are not these like stoner stoner stereotypes attached where it's like someone sitting on the couch all day eating Cheetos. A lot of people smoke weed and it's fine. But I do have to ask, what is your favorite stoner snack? Like if you're smoking pot, what do you crave? What do you Mm. like to eat? Mm. I used to eat. Um, crackling oats without milk. I mean, the cereal crackling oats. I call them joy crunchies. <laughs> um, <laughs> they look like little dog food pellets, but I love I those know, too. And I would just, I, I love them, and I would eat them one at a time as I was listening to my favorite music or whatever. Hmm. But uh, we've come a long way since we legalized marijuana in Washington uh, or five years ago. I go on the road all the time. Next week, I'll be in Washington D.C. and Delaware and Vermont. In New Jersey, uh, on a busy uh, road trip, uh, raising awareness about the uh, tragedy of our federal war on marijuana. And it's not pro-pot. I'm pro-civil liberties. I'm pro-smart policy. I'm anti-racism. We have racist laws right now. Rich white guys don't get busted for pot. It's poor people and black people get busted for pot. It's a, it's an embarrassing, horrible thing in our country. 70,000 Americans are in jail right now because of nonviolent uh, marijuana offenses. Uh, we arrest 600 or 700,000 people a year in this country for pot. And uh, what seems like common sense, that's wrong. I mean, people think if you legalize marijuana, more people are going to smoke it. Well, I've learned, and my European friends have taught me, there's no correlation between how strict the laws are and how much is consumed. You know, this is not a, a reservoir of decent people that would love to ruin their lives smoking pot if only it was legal. 
anybody who wants to smoke pot does. You know, marijuana is a drug. It's, I'm not saying it's healthy for you. It's not healthy for you. It's, it's just fun, and some people want to do it. Uh, and uh, that's a civil liberty. So Rick is talking about serious stuff here. He's doing amazing work in the world of marijuana. But I'm going to lighten things up a little bit. We're going to talk about edibles, a.k.a. foods that get you high. So when I was a kid, there was no word edibles. Basically, the words were pot brownies. Uh, And this was made with pot butter. And you had no idea how strong these things were going to be. So you would be like, I don't know, should I take one bite? Should I eat the whole brownie? I have no idea. And it takes so long for it to kick in that you don't want to wait and then, you know, eat a little bit more. So sometimes... I remember like you just you'd eat like two because you're like, these are really good. And you forget that they're full of weed. And then you have to lay down on the ground for the rest of the night and like listen to Beavis and Butthead coming out of the TV. And I bring that up because Aaron Mason and I watched a ton of Beavis and Butthead over the weekend. (laughs) Oh, so good. All those music videos. But today in states where pot is legal, like here in Washington, where we live, you can actually walk into a store and buy what is called edibles. And these are professionally packaged sweets. They're made by companies that know exactly how much pot is inside. And they range from cookies to brownies to gummies to little mints. And here in Seattle, we even have, uh, there might be more than one of these now. There's an Airbnb in Seattle that is weed themed. So like there's bongs in all the rooms, but you can pay extra to have a chef come to the house and make you a multiple course meal where every part of the meal is infused with weed. Really? Yeah. And and because I think this is a great idea because why is it always in sweets? You can add, you know, the butter or the oil to anything really. But most of the edibles out there are sweet, including those made by Seattle's The Good Ship Company owned by Jody Hall. So after many years of working at Starbucks as a barista and then moving on to doing Starbucks corporate, this is like kind of the early years of Starbucks, Jody left and she started a company in Seattle called Cupcake Royale in 2003. And now, you know, you hear, oh, cupcakes, cupcakes are everywhere. Cupcake Royale was actually the first cupcake bakery to open outside of Manhattan. Were you a baker? Did you have this recipe you were sitting on? Where did the cupcake idea come from? No, I'm not a baker at all, but I'm really good at having an idea and finding people that can help do the things that I don't know how to do. At the time, I knew how to build a retail company. I knew how to manage production of a product, and I needed a baker. So I hired a baker. And Jody applied the same strategy when she opened Good Ship. Good Ship is a manufacturer of edible products, super delicious edible products. We have cookies from our bestseller, Saigon Snickerdoodle Cookie, to a sea salt chocolate chip, uh, double fudge brownies, etc. We have chocolate products, so uh, dark chocolate with coffee or straight up dark chocolate or dreamy milk. Um, We have uh, confection products such as our pastilles, which are microdose to 2.5 milligrams. And those look like Altoids or, you know, like little mints that you would get. We just recently in the last three, four months launched uh, half dose products. We launched a fruit jelly, which is a proper French pâte du fouet. It's the predecessor to what we call gummies in America, um, but really good fruit juice, apple pectin, organic sugar. That's what's in that. We also have a, the, a peppermint patty that's an organic chocolate coating. It's super delicious. Again, five milligrams THC. Some of those products have a CBD version as well. So CBD is a cannabis compound that doesn't actually get you high, but it has all the medical benefits of marijuana. The last time that I ate pot, I was 21 and I became afraid of the dark and like had to go back to this cabin we were staying at and just like lay in the bed and I was totally freaked out. I never 
created since. I'm sure you hear a lot of stories like <laughs> this. Edible roulette thing that we're trying to combat. Yes. Exactly. So that's what I think is amazing about the legalization and then having mm-hmm. these edible products is that they are regulated. How do you do that? How does it mm-hmm. work when you know, you're making these items? How do you know how much to put in? Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's important. We understand exactly how much THC is in that product and we do math and we figure out our batch size. We've gone through multiple iterations to make sure that that THC is uniformly um, homogenized throughout the entire batch. That That's just a baking 101 in a lot of ways. So yeah, we do math and we then we test the final result, make sure it's right on point, and then we package it up and sell it out to our stores. Part of why I want to do this as well is to build a consistent experience, to build a trusted experience. It's just like if you have a Budweiser here and you go to Colorado and have a Budweiser or Europe, you want it to be the same experience. I hope you're not having a Budweiser in Europe, though. No, I hope not. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) Just (laughs) a fine beers of Europe. (laughs) A fine Stella instead. That's right. So, okay, as a consumer, though, how do you know how much you can take? Because let's say there's, you know, a cookie and it has five milligrams. I'm assuming there's a difference if you're a 90 pound woman or if you're a 200 pound man, how it's going to affect you. How do you know how much you're supposed to eat? Right. That's something that everybody needs to figure out on their own because by being afraid of the dark one night. No, by starting slow. And I would really recommend that if you buy a good chip product, we do have the pastilles or we have the five milligram products. You could cut the five milligram in half. 2.5 milligrams will mostly affect most people on a really light level. That's a really good starting spot. And if that doesn't give you an effect, and of course it can take you know, as little as 30 minutes, it can take an hour and a half or even two hours for it to kick in. And that depends on what is your mental state like? How hydrated are you? Did you just eat a big meal or not? Um, all these factors might change from time to time, but eventually you kind of get a sense. So I know that I love 2.5 milligrams. I can totally do five milligrams. If I'm talking to folks and 2.5 to 5 is generally fine for me. But more than that, I want to be at home watching a funny movie or not really have any responsibilities beyond beyond that. And everybody has to kind of figure that out for themselves. And for example, I know I, I, a fellow I was working with who really never consumed marijuana his whole life. I think he's 45, probably weighs 150 pounds, a lean, skinny guy, uh, he would have to eat three cookies to feel it, huh. 30 milligrams, Whoa. where that would just knock me over. So how do you incorporate the pot or THC into the food? Because anyone you know who's experimented before, it would always go into the butter or mm-hmm. oil is what I understood. So there's various methods to extract THC or oil from the cannabis plant. You could use ethanol extraction. You could use CO2. You could use hard hydrocarbon, which is butane hash oil. Or, And we're all learning this, right? This is all kind of newer technology that's now out in the light. We actually buy the oil. We're not growing marijuana and extracting marijuana. Um, so you're not throwing chunks of weed into a, a vat of butter. We're letting the growers help make that for us. That keeps it clean and green is really important to us. We don't want pesticides. And so we have very stringent specs on what we're looking for. We don't look for a very uh, high chloroform taste, plant weedy taste. We we distill it to kind of weed that out, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Rick Steves' last meal. 
I'm so lucky that I found my niche, and it's my passion, it's my hobby, and it's my work. It's traveling. The third edition of Rick Steves' book, Travel as a Political Act, is out now. You can find that book along with all of his guidebooks and lots of other stuff at ricksteves.com. He also uh, has this big travel company and you can take a tour uh, and all that's available at ricksteves.com. Thanks to John Curley, a lovable little weirdo who sits across from me at work every day and he makes me laugh. Thanks to Jody Hall, founder of Cupcake Royale and The Good Ship Company. You can find more at thegoodship.com. This episode is produced by Aaron Mason and me. Our theme music is by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Thank you.